0: You can overcome that by going to a third party and SJS ZIV or you know, wh- whatever we might do. Um, but what feels like the bigger problem for me is this kind of it's a almost retrospective. So, uh, am I right in thinking that if I had a, a connection offer uh, a couple of years ago, let's say, or a year ago, and the, the modeling that would have come out either from the network operator or from a third party is actually now potentially completely irrelevant because those set points, those trim limits, would have been updated on the networks and therefore the risk could have just got significantly higher. Hello and welcome to the Connectology podcast. Here, Road Knight-Taylor's influential team of elite connection specialists and their expert guests help you to better understand distribution and transmission network connections and how to acquire them faster, for less cost and at lower risk. So welcome to this episode, which is, uh, I think we've got a working title for this, which is currently, is your project's curtailment about to get worse? Or are your project's curtailments about to get worse? Something along those lines, Catherine, is that we kind of agreed? Yeah, sounds good. <laughs> Excellent. Okay. So um, I'm joined by three of our connectologists, Catherine Cleary, Philip Bale, Pete Aston, to discuss a topic that came up in the last Grid News and Views that we did, which was around some changes within some or all of the networks in terms of how they are actually modelling and or operating their a schemes. So Pete, seeing as you uh, were responsible for the rollout of active network management at National Grid Electricity Distribution, um, as is now. What's your understanding of what's changed and how that's going to impact projects?
1: I think in terms of what's changing, there's lots of things changing in the DNOs all the time. One of the things is because AM is still a relatively new technology for lots of the DNOs, the DNOs are all developing their policies on this, um, and they're all developing the way that they're going to be operating these a m systems and the way they do the curtailment reports and working with third-party providers who are you know, constantly developing these things as well. So there's lots of flux just because it's still a, a developing area of technology um, and, and policy. In terms of curtailments, and I think we've maybe t- talked about this before through the significant code review, um, there was the introduction of um, a curtailment limits approach where all the DNOs were going to issue a sort of end-stop curtailment limit to customers. And there was a, a spreadsheet that was available through from Offgem that sort of developed by the DNOs that was used to calculate that curtailment limit. Unfortunately, what is happening is most of the DNOs seem to be just migrating to using that spreadsheet for issuing curtailment predictions full stop. As As opposed to it being just a backstop limit, it's now just being the level of curtailment you're being sort of issued in terms of your, um, with your connection offers. So that's something to be aware of. And then I suspect we're just going to get into now about how these A&M systems are actually going to be operated um, in real life. And I think that's one of the the, the key issues now is how do those curtailment limits, curtailment assessments match up against what the reality is going to be when you're connected to the A&M system.
2: And I think one of the things that we... Are less happy with with a curtailment spreadsheet that's come out that was developed by Offgem is that it re-rates network nodes based on what they perceive to be the worst um, first circuit outage event on there and takes the lowest network limit, which then significantly derates networks and potentially doesn't replicate what the actual A&M scheme itself will be, or opens a lot of questions where... DNOs have been basing it on the network asset based on normal running, not necessarily the first circuit outage. I think that's what sort of concerned us. And I think the area where there needs to be more open, transparent conversation to try and work out what will the actual limits of the schemes be in practice? How might they change in the future? And then trying to ensure that curtailment assessments reflect the actual system itself with some variables in there.
3: Okay. And that's quite a big change from what people probably previously assumed, which was that really simplistically, the DNO had a network model. So, you know, a schematic representation of the network in a power system software that had all of the cables, overhead lines, transformers, and each one of those assets had a rating. Um, And when they were assessing curtailment, you know, with effects I think most people were assuming they were using those models, those operational models, passing them over to, you know, either a third party doing that curtailment assessment, someone like SGS, um, or internally and using those same asset ratings that they use for their everyday planning work in the kind of calculation of curtailment whereas the spreadsheet that we're talking about here is a much more simplistic approach that doesn't allow for that individual asset for multiple constraints to be considered is that right
1: yeah that's right and i'll also say that this this spreadsheet that's um, now being used by the dnos just isn't appropriate for networks that are interconnected uh, and lots of networks do run interconnected with each other. And, and those interconnected networks are really complicated. And um, previous methods that they might have used to provide you with a curtailment assessment were probably a bit more nuanced, a bit more clever, more than just a simple spreadsheet. They were actually running some analysis. Um, so the spreadsheet approach in in some circumstances in nice, simple networks might work in really complicated networks doesn't work very well at all.
2: And I think there again, every DNO is different with where they are in this process. So we do cattailment risk reviews and assessments for other customers. Last week we asked one DNO what the rating of the asset was, and we're pushed to the LTDS, the long-term development statement, which has, as Catherine says, the spring, summer, autumn, winter ratings of circuits and assets. Um, and ultimately, there is a risk that in the future the DNO changes their mind and says, actually, we're going to re-rate these assets for A and M limit purposes and then it derates it and people's retirement risk could go up and then they might decide that actually they're being too pessimistic so then tweak them again which might release more capacity into the network. I think the concern is that none of this is documented in connection agreements. None of this is written down even in some instances which assets you have active network management on isn't defined and is fluid for the future. Um, so there again, I think there needs to be more transparency just so at least people can understand where their risks do lie.
3: And that's almost the second half of the problem, isn't it, Philip? So, so the first bit is, can you get a decent estimate as to what your curtailment might be? So is that curtailment assessment process you know, relatively robust? Does it take into account the complexity of the networks? Um, and that's, that's the kind of issue with the spreadsheet, isn't it? But the, the next stage is then how does that assessment and the assumptions that we used, how does that translate into the setup of the a system itself? So now we're talking about a piece of software which effectively runs a, a, a box of RTUs um, you know, on customer sites and monitoring individual assets um, on, the, on the distribution network. So we're talking about like a real time, live software analysis, which is constantly calculating how much headroom individual generators have to generate. And it might be giving a, sort of you know, a, a kind of a set point limit or a, or a trim limit um, as different dnas use different terminologies and the, that software if we go kind of back a few years probably the original thinking was again that you'd kind of take your operational network model that you had in power system software you'd be using that to, to inform the programming of your, your actual A&M system um, and I guess as we've seen more a systems roll out actually there's had to be a bit more thinking about do DNOs want to use the same limits that they're doing for their you know normal intact kind of operational planning? Do they want to be a bit more pessimistic? I think Philip, you're saying you've you've seen some quite quite pessimistic assumptions.
2: We've seen some very pessimistic assumptions, which then we've pushed back on and said, actually, are these the right assumptions that are going through? And then seeing new network limits coming out, there again, I think each DNO is at a very different stage of this. I mean, A and M is a very complicated area because it's a control system that sits within the network which also sits within operational limits, short-term ratings, protection limits, and how much each of the DNOs want to push their network and the level of risk they're willing to take on, which then links back to how much curtailment people will see as a result. And I think there's not that many schemes that are actually connected using A&M, um, which then means some of the DNOs rightly are probably going to be pessimistic. But at the expense of curtailment that customers would see, Obviously, if they're not pessimistic, we could see cascade trips, we could see network assets being damaged, um, which is obviously also not what we want. So it is a very fine balance on these, and some networks are more affected than most. We tend to see the meshed networks are highly complicated networks, where if a network asset trips or has an outage, the power gets rerouted through the others. That's the ones that we're seeing potentially A&M being far more pessimistic for, and potentially customers seeing far higher levels of risk than they may realize they've had on some of the earlier um, curtailment assessments that were done without realizing where the sort of potentially the risks exist.
0: Yeah, this I think is the the thing for me that we, we appear to have kind of two two issues. One is that those curtailment assessments that are coming out from network operators now are Potentially far more pessimistic than they would have been because of the spreadsheet that they're using. It's far more simplistic. You can overcome that by going to a third party and SGS ZIV or you know whatever we might do. um But what feels like the bigger problem for me is this kind of it's a almost retrospective. So uh, am I right in thinking that if I had a, a connection offer uh, a couple of years ago, let's say, or a year ago, and the, the modelling that would have come out either from the network operator or from a third party is actually now potentially completely irrelevant because those set points, those trim limits would have been updated on the networks and
1: therefore the risk could have just got significantly higher.
2: Potentially. Some DNOs are still not putting out any information on their schemes.
1: And that's right, Philip. And with with all the curtailment assessments with the DNOs, none of them guarantee any level of level of curtailment they don't guarantee it so the only thing that's changed on that recently is this curtailment limit that's come in uh with the off-gem spreadsheet but those curtailment limits are sky high and
3: often 100 percent.
1: often 100 so so it's completely letting the dnos off the hook yeah. uh, in terms of giving any sensible sort of limit so so really the dnos can make any changes they like in a sense to, to their policies and so on because i think as maybe philip or catherine's already said those policies aren't are put in your connection offers aren't really published anywhere so they could turn around and completely change the way they operate these a m systems and you would just be at the mercy of them in terms of how that affects your ongoing curtailment through the lifetime of your project
2: i think also the other thing to add is that there's also changes in the design of these a m systems in terms of the comms requirements the speed the latency of these systems And there seems to be a general trend of slowing things down to reduce costs, so simpler communications. And the downside of doing that means that you are then designing your system with more redundancy and spare capacity in it to allow for the fact that your controllable devices are operating much slower. The downside is if you operate them too quickly, you might find that you have more expense, potentially hunting on the system in terms of oscillations. But if you slow them down, you are leaving capacity within the network that then can't be used for customers or putting the network at risk.
0: And, and, And leaving capacity in the network... Is lost yield in terms of energy. So, and that's also lost decarbonisation because most of these projects are low carbon technologies Uh, and it's lost revenue for investors. So, it's given that it, you know, it sounds like the the network operators, um, as long as they're doing the right thing, which is that they are going to be ensuring that they maximise that yield, but not at the expense of, of safety and and that kind of system resilience and and reliability, how do we get to a point where they are guaranteed to do the right thing, if that makes sense?
3: I think a lot of it actually is probably about documentation because Whilst there's so much change going on, it's probably quite reasonable that some of the DNOs do take a slightly more pessimistic view initially. You know, I think if, actually if I was a if I was a system planner, but also potentially if I was a customer, I might rather that a DNO set up an AM system with slightly more pessimistic limits with a view to going back and revising that as more customers connected, as that AM system got more stressed, because actually arguably to begin with there might be fewer customers connected. So those pessimistic limits might not affect customers so much. We're not seeing so much yield. There can be the learning. What's really important for customers to be protected is that those set points, for example, um, and the specific assets which you are being constrained because of are listed in a connection agreement. Because then everyone can agree that when this project was energized, these were the these these were the kind of lines in the sand. They were the, the assumptions that were used. It then gives the customer the kind of confidence that they can have have a conversation five years later with the DNA to say, how's it going? We're seeing more curtailment than we wanted um, or than we expected, or actually, you know, we're seeing less, um, but, you know, and and revisit how the assumptions are sort of working out in practice. I think the risk here is that so much is changing, so little is being documented that it'll be anyone's guess what assumptions were used originally and therefore a customer won't know if they're being changed whether things are going to get better or things are going to get worse so i think getting things into connection agreements is really key so details around specific assets um, and the asset ratings which are being used as set points in the nm system it's not dissimilar to the fact that your connection agreement at the moment if you were putting in a new five kilometer 33 kv cable to connect your solar farm um your connection agreement would have the length the asset rating of that 33 kv cable as a new asset that's added in you know you could come back later and say we're gonna derate this for the following engineering reasons, but but you would have to edit that agreement.
2: Yeah, and I think just to jump in very quickly, I think there's two other elements. Number one is historically network operators only used to study the very worst example, the worst half hour maximum demand, minimum demand scenarios. Obviously AM is driving them to do more energy in terms of time flows. I'm not aware of any DNOs that are studying the per second cycle or the sub second cycle in terms of how their network will operate outside of protection assessments in terms of studying. And there might be an element where actually to fully understand it, it needs to be modelled. Obviously models are only as good as the data that you put into there. The second thing that concerns us as well, I know Pete wants to come in, is (laughs) battery storage... If you're slowing down the system, as well as also losing yield, you might also restrict the ability of how that battery can operate. These batteries can operate sub-cycle, sub-second. They are very quick-acting systems. That could cause massive problems for the DNOs if their systems are based on minute responses and you've got a large battery storage scheme that wants to swing in less than a second potentially also that restricts the ability of GBPLC of unlocking all the benefits that come from these battery storage um, systems installed in areas where there's a and m
0: cool not cool rather a very good time for a break great idea i hope you're really enjoying this episode so far and gaining a lot of very useful insight if you're a new listener i hope You'll feel like you might come back. If so, make sure you hit the follow button and feel free to sign up to our newsletter, The Connectologist, at roadnighttaylor.co.uk so you don't miss out on any of the podcast webinars, case studies, thought pieces, and explainers. Welcome back. Hope you enjoyed your break.
1: Yeah, right. I just wanted to come in with a slightly more positive slant because we've been really negative so far, um, which, which is always which is which is important. Uh, but just on the positive side, the changes to the charging rules on uh, the DNO networks this year mean that um, less customers need uh, generation customers will need to pay for less reinforcement. Generally, that sort of trigger uh, less reinforcement works or pay for less reinforcement works, and I think that that is meaning that there's potentially more generation schemes coming along that don't need A&M in the long term, uh, so, so it gets away from needing AM, but there's a short-term opportunity to have AM as an interim option between now and when the reinforcement's done, so you can connect early. So there's going to be potentially more customers out there on short-term sort of interim A&M schemes. It's got all the same issues that we've just been talking about, of course, but it means that there is a... A shorter time period over which you've got that uncertainty. So I think that's one thing to say. Uh, the other thing to say is that the DNOs are going to be triggering reinforcements on the system um, in all sorts of different places. System reinforcements will inevitably benefit people who are on a systems. So there's, there's nothing to say in an a and contract that you don't benefit from a network being reinforced and your curtailment going down as a result. So so that there are things that will happen from a sort of general reinforcement point of view that that will improve the a m system uh, situation for some customers It's not going to obviously be everyone but there'll be some customers who benefit from that point of view and I was just going to pick up on sort that was two things i'm going to say a third <laughs> thing um in terms of that interim curtailment arrangement the the new technical limits rollout that's coming along to allow customers to connect. Ahead of transmission reinforcement is going to be effectively an interim a m system the impact of a and m on customers in terms of sort of transmission issues is is a massive one uh, and maybe it's another one to pick up another time but um is effectively going to be an interim solution for lots of customers um so n- is gonna be incredibly difficult to model, but it's only gonna be a short time period.
3: Yeah, maybe is it fair to call them teething problems we're almost seeing as people actually roll out some of the more sophisticated AM systems in anger? Um I don't know if either of you were involved actually in the sort of there was an AM good practice guide that that the ENA produced um quite a while back, sort of which was almost the kind of learning from quite a few innovation projects. I'm looking at Philip, because it's probably one of yours, wasn't it? But but it almost feels like perhaps we need an update to that, which is, you know, the good practice AM implementation or rollout. You know, so so actually we we've got a few different manufacturers in this space, you know, who are going to be implementing slightly different systems. We've definitely got some DNOs who are now People like SSE beginning to roll out standardised A&M across all of their network areas. So places like Shetland and Orkney, which had kind of bespoke ANM systems, are being replaced with the kind of standard SSE system. So it feels like there's, there's kind of quite a lot of change now. But we we've still got different DNOs, different manufacturers doing different things in terms of assumptions.
2: Agreed. And I think there's potentially uh, we're raising this because we're seeing some issues on specific connections. And also assuming that, that it's also going to happen to the other DNO. I
3: think the industry has done lots of really good collaboration on AM, and there are some great innovation teams working within the DNOs. What's much harder is to standardize a couple of different DNOs' system planning assumptions. They have very, you know, I think it's fair to say different DNOs have different um, approaches when it comes to asset ratings, how they run their networks, um, you know, even whether people are trying to do things like pre-fault or post-fault curtailment.
2: Absolutely, yeah, and there again, different DNs will have different approaches in terms of risk taking, and um, and trying for the customer to understand where that sits. I think is important.
3: Just, just a
0: thought. So, you know, if I am a, a connections customer who's got an accepted offer from you know sort of a year or so back, just how big an issue might this be in terms of the way that the network operators are, are going to be operating their A and M systems? how big an issue might it be in sort of percentage lost yield? And I think it is quite important actually because we have investment directors who are obviously investing significantly um, as a development directors who work out where to put risk capital in terms of planning and the like. Is this something that they should be looking at and they should be getting an expert independent view on? Is it something that is going to make for some projects, might make 1% or 2% in terms of the, a, an increase in their the curtailment risk? Or could it be making 10 20% in some individual cases?
2: There's some networks, based on the current approach of DNO's planning of what the systems will do, where it could make huge differences.
3: I suppose specifically, if a curtailment assessment perhaps had been done um, by a DNA before they'd rolled out A and so there are a few um, systems where if that curtailment assessment had assumed sort of post-fault curtailment, and actually the system which is rolled out is what we would refer to as pre-fault curtailment, so a more a more pessimistic way where you're you're constraining the generator to um, like kind of n minus one scenario already all of the time in, in in anticipation of a fault, rather than really quickly reacting to a fault. Um, that's the kind of scenario where your curtailment might suddenly double
2: 100 percent or more
1: depending uh, on where you are yeah you could end up with better curtailment because not all the generation connects yeah. um because most curtailment assessments assume 100 percent build out of what's ever in the pipeline before you and i think that's could could significantly change <laughs> based on planning n- knowing that there's a lot more in the pipeline than there's than likely to be be needed so yes there'll be some areas of the network where it does all build out and and you are you do see the curtailment that was predicted but there'll be other areas where actually you might go i never see any curtailment because most of the generation didn't actually build out so so it's a very difficult picture to predict i think
3: well it's almost like you you get your first piece of paper which says you might have 22 percent curtailment you know the dna has produced this this estimate and then you know we're quite used to customers going away as you say kind of Taking that uh, to potentially to a third party, who would then maybe change the assumptions and think, well, these 15 batteries ahead of me in the queue aren't all going to connect; they're not all going to operate 24/7. Um, so I've redone some, you know, assessments based on that developer's view. You might know who's got planning permission in the area, all of that. You've come, you've you've reestimated it, and you're back down at you know five percent curtailment level. And I suppose what we're highlighting now is that. So it's already got much better from what the DNA was saying. You, you're happy with your five percent. You've made your investment decision. It's almost that there needs to be a recheck once you've actually then looked at going into build, into implementation, um the sort of the setting parameters that Philip's talking about in terms of network asset ratings. That could change your five percent. Your five percent might turn out to be seven, or it might turn out to be ten. If they, you know, if there's a, a, so it could be a kind of you know significant change, um but it's unlikely to go from five hopefully to a hundred. But getting to the grips with what kind of flavour of a does your site have, I think, Hugh, is, is really important for investment directors. I think, you know... That pre-fault, There's, post-fault. Yeah, is it pre-fault? Is it post-fault? Um, you know, so, is it confirm it is a is it, LIFO Is it cube? LIFO? Yeah, it <laughs> know, it's not going to yeah. get worse if, you know, another 50 generators join it later down the line. Um, so, you know, those are all kind of, they're relatively low-hanging fruit. They're easier things to answer. They'll give you an idea about whether, is this a really high-risk site where the curtailment might change a lot um, once I get into the detail? Because actually, that investment director wants to make a decision about whether to fund that project, you know, at least a year before energy it's it's relatively unlikely at the moment that the DNO is going to be in a position to give you all of the detail behind an NM system if it isn't yet up and running. Um, so they may say, you know, well, bear with us. Quite rightly, um, we need to kind of work through those details. We'll try and flesh them out in your connection agreement, and we'll be sort of talking to you about this sort of three months before you energise. That's obviously too late for an investment decision. So you've got to kind of go for the the information that's available that might help guide you as to how pessimistic a, a curtailment assessment might have been.
2: However, Catherine, the one thing I'd say there is. A lot of people have accepted their schemes on the basis of the DNO having an A and system that was post fault, only for the DNO to go back and reevaluate to decide that actually the system they're going to roll out is pre fault, which then massively changes the goalposts in terms of where the A and M limits will be. I
3: feel like and- we might need an explainer on pre fault and post fault curtailment. Have you done one, Pete? Possibly.
1: I'd oh. have to go and review. If I haven't, I will. I, I vow now on this post- podcast to do one.
0: <laughs> so we'll, put, we'll put a link in the description to Pete's explainer on um, A&M curtailment and on Category Z and Category B. B
1: <laughs> which is specifically NGED.
0: Yeah, um, which is specifically um, NGED. Just a, a, a thought or a, I guess a summary or a last question from me would be if you are one of those projects that that is very unlucky that the stars misalign to the extent that your level of curtailment and that that would be real curtailment not just what's modeled is likely to multiply is there anything you can do to influence I guess you can't Influence the network asset ratings. Can well, you influence the set points?
3: You could, yes. So the, these set points might be a discussion, especially to begin with. As we say, you know, this might be a design engineer or a design team taking a particularly pessimistic view um, because you know they're not sure how that asset's going to respond, and that kind of needs to be done in conversation with customers because it needs the other half saying, "Well, I understand you're being pessimistic, but please understand that for me, I've lost an extra million pounds worth of revenue each year." Yeah. So uh, you know, I think having that conversation and pushing back is only fair and reasonable
1: and and pushing back to say okay you've changed your set point is that because you've seen overloads on the system or have you just wanting to do it because you think it's the right thing to do, you know. You've, you've got to sort of evidence something to to say why you've changed this, or why you've changed your ratings policy, or, or why you've changed something else. So definitely a conversation could be had, so and, and
3: providing that kind of evidence to say this is the knock-on impact in terms of lost hours, um, lost energy generated, you know, lost revenue from my perspective as a customer. You know, that's that then helps build a case for System planners to be, you know, perhaps a little bit bit more uh, agile in considering higher limits or reassessing limits more frequently.
0: But it almost feels like there'd be a role for the regulator in that regard as well.
3: I, I think that's been acknowledged actually very recently because of these um, backstop curtailment limits that, that Pete mentioned you know as a result of SCR, and that a number of those have come out at 100%. And, and I think Ofgem has already said, this was not our intention. So I think the regulator, I think has already begun to have its eyes open to the fact that perhaps SCR was not prescriptive enough to dnos to to say the intention here is to yes connect customers early, but it is not to constrain customers to a prohibitive level
1: um the other thing I'd say is what your question was is there anything that developers can do about sort of increasing m curtailment and one of the things you could do is apply for a firm connection as in firm access type connection do you get rid of your a m Connection altogether, so you could apply to to be a non A connection. So you uh, could you could look at the you could get an offer from the DNO, and they might go well. In order to make you non A M, we'd have to do X Y Z reinforcement.
0: Do you have to connect first because you'd lose your place in the queue if you reapply? I think
1: you would really need to connect first before you did that. But it it is possible, and under the under the new charging rules, you might get a better answer than you think. Or, or the DNA might have done the reinforcement for you under a capital reinforcement scheme.
0: Great! It sounds like there there is a role for for everybody in this. The individual networks, those those system planning teams, and the innovation teams. There's a role for the ENA. There's a role for the regulator, and there's definitely a role for sophisticated connections customers. to to really
3: step up just sort of sharing what we're seeing what what is kind of working well and what isn't working so well from a customer perspective is probably useful um at the moment
2: and Catherine mentioned on our last webinar that was only yesterday which is some schemes probably shouldn't progress and i think that's probably something and and
0: that's because of this risk of losing weeks of output through abnormal running and it's the same changes. for anything or, in or, or of...
3: through a yeah. yeah exactly right. that the, 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 there's always an onus on the customer you know to assess whether something is commercially viable you know and ultimately not all of these offers are going to be commercially viable cool
0: i think we've uh done this very thoroughly so uh, it's been an absolute <laughs> joy being here with the three of you <laughs> and uh yeah good um thank you very much goodbye goodbye
3: thanks you
2: bye oh, thanks a lot
0: Thank you for taking your precious time to listen to this episode. Now, not everyone is ready to have a connectologist in their life. For others, it's just too expensive. And as our team is so small, we do have to be very selective in what work we take on. And that's why we put so much effort into these shows. We want our society to have the equitable energy system it needs in order to decarbonize and to thrive. So we want to help to topple as many connections barriers as we possibly can, in spite of our size. So please do feel free to ping a link to this episode to anyone you know who might be interested because it would mean so much to everyone here.